Section 9 of The Wheels of Chance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wheels of Chance by H. G. Wells. The Surbiton Interlude. Chapter 26. And here, thanks to the glorious institution of sleep, comes a break in the narrative again. These absurd young people are safely tucked away now, their heads full of glowing nonsense, indeed, but the course of events, at any rate, is safe from any fresh developments through their activities for the next eight hours or more. They are both sleeping healthily, you will perhaps be astonished to hear. Here is the girl, what girls are coming to nowadays only Mrs. Lynn Linton can tell, in company with an absolute stranger, of low extraction and uncertain accent, unchaperoned and unabashed, Indeed, now she fancies she is safe. She is, if anything, a little proud of her own share in these transactions. Then this Mr. Hoopdriver of yours, roseate idiot that he is, is in illegal possession of a stolen bicycle, a stolen young lady, and two stolen names, established with them in an hotel that is quite beyond his means, and immensely proud of himself in a somnolent way for these incomparable follies. There are occasions when a moralizing novelist can merely wring his hands and leave matters to take their course. For all Hoopdriver knows or cares, he may be locked up the very first thing tomorrow morning for the rape of the cycle. Then in Bonnier, let alone that melancholy vestige, the camel, with whom our dealings are, thank goodness, over, there is a coffee tavern with the steak Mr. Hoopdriver ordered, done to a cinder long ago, his American cloth parcel in a bedroom, and his own proper bicycle, by way of guarantee, carefully locked up in the hayloft. Tomorrow he will be a mystery, and they will be looking for his body along the seafront. And so far we have never given a glance at the desolate home in Surbiton, familiar to you no doubt through the medium of illustrated interviews, where the unhappy stepmother, that stepmother, it must be explained, is quite well known to you. That is a little surprise I have prepared for you. She is Thomas Plantagenet, the gifted authoress of that witty and daring book, A Soul Untrammelled, and quite an excellent woman in her way, only it is such a crooked way. Her real name is Milton, she is a widow and a charming one, only ten years older than Jessie, and she is always careful to dedicate her more daring works to the sacred memory of my husband, to show that there is nothing personal, you know, in the matter. Considering her literary reputation, she was always speaking of herself, as one I martyred for truth, because the critics advertised her written indecorums in column-long slates. Considering her literary reputation, I say, she was one of the most respectable women it is possible to imagine. She furnished correctly, she dressed correctly, had severe notions of whom she might meet, went to church, and even at times took the sacrament in some esoteric spirit. And Jessie she brought up so carefully that she never even let her read a soul untrammelled, which, therefore, naturally enough, Jessie did, and went on from that to a feast of advanced literature. Mrs. Milton not only brought up Jessie carefully, but very slowly, so that at seventeen she was still a clever schoolgirl, as you have seen her, and quite in the background of the little literary circle of unimportant celebrities which Thomas Plantagenet adorned. Mrs. Milton knew the camel's reputation of being a dangerous man, but then bad men are not bad women, and she let him come to her house to show she was not afraid. 
she took no account of Jessie. When the elopement came, therefore, it was a double disappointment to her, for she perceived his hand by a kind of instinct. She did the correct thing. The correct thing, as you know, is to take handsome cabs, regardless of expense, and weep and say you do not know what to do, round the circle of your confidential friends. She could not have ridden or wept more had Jessie been her own daughter. She showed the properest spirit. And she not only showed it, but felt it. Mrs. Milton, as a successful little authoress and still more successful widow of thirty-two, Thomas Plantagenet is a charming woman, her reviewers used to write invariably, even if they spoke ill of her, found the steady growth of Jessie into womanhood an unmitigated nuisance and had been willing enough to keep her in the background. And Jessie, who had started this intercourse at fourteen with abstract objections to stepmothers, had been active enough in resenting this. Increasing rivalry and antagonism had sprung up between them, until they could engender quite a vivid hatred from a dropped hairpin or the cutting of a book with a sharpened knife. There is very little deliberate wickedness in the world. The stupidity of our selfishness gives much the same results indeed, but in the ethical laboratory it shows a different nature. And when the disaster came, Mrs. Milton's remorse for their gradual loss of sympathy and her share in the losing of it was genuine enough. You may imagine the comfort she got from her friends, and how West Kensington and Notting Hill and Hampstead, the literary suburbs whose decent penitentiaries of a once bohemian calling hummed with the business. Her men, as a charming literary lady she had, of course, an organized corpse, were immensely excited and were sympathetic, helpfully energetic, suggestive, alert, as their ideals of their various dispositions required them to be. Any news of Jessie? was the pathetic opening of a dozen melancholy but interesting conversations. To her men she was not perhaps so damp as she was to her women friends, but in a quiet way she was even more touching. For three days, Wednesday that is, Thursday and Friday, nothing was heard of the fugitives. It was known that Jessie, wearing a patent costume with button-up skirts, and mounting on a diamond frame, safety with dunlops, and a loofah-covered saddle, had ridden forth early in the morning, taking with her about two pounds seven shillings in money and a great touring-case packed, and there, save for the brief note to her stepmother, her declaration of independence, it was said, an assertion of her ego containing extensive and very annoying quotations from a soul untrammeled, and giving no definite intimation of her plans, knowledge ceased. That note was shown to few, and then only in the strictest confidence. But on Friday evening late came a breathless man-friend, Witchery, a correspondent of hers, who had heard of her trouble among the first. He had been touring in Sussex, his knapsack was still on his back, and he testified hurriedly that at a place called Midhurst, in the bar of an hotel called the Angel, he had heard from a barmaid a vivid account of a young lady in grey. Descriptions tallied. But who was the man in brown? The poor misguided girl! I must go to her at once! she said, choking, and rising with her hand to her heart. "'It's impossible to-night. There are no more trains. I looked on my way.' "'A mother's love,' she said. "'I bear her that.' "'I know you do,' he spoke with feeling, for no one admired his photographs of scenery more than Mrs. Milton. "'It's more than she deserves.' "'Oh, don't speak unkindly of her. She has been misled.' It was really very friendly of him. 
he declared he was only sorry his news ended there. Should he follow them and bring her back? He had come to her because he knew of her anxiety. It is good of you, she said, and quite instinctively took and pressed his hand. And to think of that poor girl, to-night it is dreadful. She looked into the fire that he had lit when he came in. The warm light fell upon her dark purple dress, and left her features in a warm shadow. She looked such a slight, frail thing to be troubled so. We must follow her. Her resolution seemed magnificent. I have no one to go with me. He must marry her, said the man. She has no friends. We have no one. After all, two women, so helpless. And this fair-haired little figure was a woman that people who knew her, only from her books, called bold, prurient even, simply because she was great-hearted, intellectual. He was overcome by the unspeakable pathos of her position. Mrs. Milton, he said, Hetty. She glanced at him. The overflow was imminent. Not now, she said. Not now. I must find her first. Yes, he said with intense emotion. He was one of those big fat men who feel deeply. But let me help you. At least let me help you. But can you spare time? She said. For me? For you? But what can I do? What can we do? Go to Midhurst. Follow her on. Trace her. She was there on Thursday night, last night. She cycled out of the town. Courage, he said. We will save her yet. She put out her hand and pressed his again. Courage, he repeated, finding it so well received. There were alarms and excursions without. She turned her back to the fire, and he sat down suddenly in the big armchair, which suited his dimensions admirably. Then the door opened, and the girl showed in Dangle, who looked curiously from one to the other. There was emotion here, he had heard the armchair creaking, and Mrs. Milton, whose face was flushed, displayed a suspicious alacrity to explain. "'You too,' she said, "'are one of my good friends, and we have news of her at last.' It was decidedly an advantage to Richery, but Dangle determined to show himself a man of resource. In the end, he, too, was accepted for the Midhurst expedition, to the intense disgust of Ridgery, and young Phipps, a callow youth of few words, faultless scholars, and fervent devotion, was also enrolled before the evening was out. They would scour the country, all three of them. She appeared to brighten up a little, but it was evident she was profoundly touched. She did not know what she had done to merit such friends. Her voice broke a little, she moved towards the door, and young Phipps, who was a youth of action rather than words, sprang and opened it, proud to be first. "'She is sorely troubled,' said Dangle to Ridgery. "'We must do what we can for her.' "'She is a wonderful woman,' said Dangle. "'So subtle, so intricate, so many-faceted. She feels this deeply.' Young Phipps said nothing, but he felt the more. "'And yet they say the age of chivalry is dead.' But this is only an interlude, introduced to give our wanderers time to refresh themselves by good, honest sleeping. For the present, therefore, we will not concern ourselves with the starting of the rescue party, nor with Mrs. Milton's simple but becoming grey dress, with the healthy Ridgery's Norfolk jacket and thick boots, with the slender dangle's energetic bearing, nor with the wonderful checkerings that set off the legs of the golf-suited Phipps. They are after us. In a little while, 
they will be upon us. You must imagine as you best can the competitive ratings at Midhurst of Widgery, Dangle, and Phipps. How Widgery was great at questions, and Dangle good at inference, and Phipps so conspicuously inferior in everything that he felt it, and sulked with Mrs. Milton most of the day, after the manner of your callow youth the world over. Mrs. Milton stopped at the Angel, and was very sad and charming and intelligent, and Widgery paid the bill. In the afternoon of Saturday, Chichester was attained, but by that time our fugitives, as you shall immediately hear. THE AWAKENING OF MR. HOOPDRIVER CHAPTER Twenty Seven. Mr. Hoopdriver stirred on his pillow, opened his eyes, and, staring unmeaningly, yawned. The bedclothes were soft and pleasant. He turned the peaked nose that overrides the insufficient moustache, up to the ceiling, a pinkish projection over the billow of white. You might see it wrinkle as he yawned again, and then became quiet. So matters remained for a space. Very slowly recollection returned to him. Then a shock of intermediate brown hair appeared, and first one watery grey eye a-wondering, and then two. The bed upheaved, and you had him, his thin neck projecting abruptly from the clothes he held about him, his face staring about the room. He held the clothes about him, I hope I may explain, because his nightshirt was at Bodnior in an American cloth packet, derelict. He yawned a third time, rubbed his eyes, smacked his lips. He was recalling almost everything now. The pursuit, the hotel, the tremulous daring of his entry, the swift adventure of the inn-yard, the moonlight. Abruptly he threw the clothes back, and rose into a sitting position on the edge of the bed. Without was the noise of the shutters being unfastened and doors unlocked, and the passing of hoofs and wheels in the street. He looked at his watch. Half-past six. He surveyed the sumptuous room again. "'Lord,' said Hoopdriver, "'it wasn't a dream, after all.' "'I wonder what they charge for these Jews' rooms,' said Mr. Hoopdriver, nursing one rosy foot. He became meditative, tugging at his insufficient moustache. Suddenly he gave vent to a noiseless laugh. "'What a rush it was!' rushed in and off with his girl right under his nose planned it well too talk of highway robbery talk of brigands up and off how juiced sold he must be feeling it was a shave too in the coachyard suddenly he became silent abruptly his eyebrows rose and his jaw fell i say said mr hoopdriver he had never thought of it before perhaps you will understand the whirl he had been in overnight but one sees things clearer in the daylight. I'm hanged if I haven't been and stolen a blessed bicycle. Who cares? said Mr. Hoopdriver, presently, and his face supplied the answer. Then he thought of the young lady in grey again, and tried to put a more heroic complexion on the business, but of an early morning on an empty stomach. As with characteristic coarseness, medical men put it, heroics are of a more difficult growth than by moonlight. Everything had seemed exceptionally fine and brilliant, but quite natural, the evening before. Mr. Hoopdriver reached out his hand, took his Norfolk jacket, laid it over his big knees, and took out the money from the little ticket pocket. Fourteen and six half, he said, holding the coins in his left hand and stroking his chin with his right. He verified, by patting, the presence of a pocket-book in the breast pocket. Five, fourteen, six half said Mr. Hoopdriver. Left. 
with the norfolk jacket still on his knees he plunged into another silent meditation that wouldn't matter he said it's the bikes the bother no good going back to bonnier might send it back by carrier of course thank him for the loan having no further use mr hoopdriver chuckled and lapsed into the silent concoction of a delightfully impudent letter mr j hoopdriver presents his compliments but the grave note reasserted itself might trundle back there in an hour of course and exchange them my old crock's so blessed shabby he's sure to be spiteful too have me run in perhaps then she'd be in just the same old fix only worse you see i'm her knight errant it complicates things so his eye wandering loosely rested on the sponge bath what the juice do they want with cream pans in a bedroom said mr hoopdriver en passant best thing i can do is to get out of here as soon as possible anyhow i suppose she'll go home to her friends that bicycle is a juicy nuisance anyhow juicy nuisance he jumped to his feet with a sudden awakening of energy to proceed with his toilet then with a certain horror he remembered that the simple necessaries of that process were at bonnier lord he remarked and whistled silently for a space rummy girl profit and loss profit one sister with bicycle complete what offers cheap for tooth and airbrush vests nightshirt stockings and sunrise make the best of it and presently when it came to hairbrushing he had to smooth his troubled locks with his hands it was a poor result sneak out and get a shave i suppose and buy a brush and so on chink again beard don't show much he ran his hand over his chin looked at himself steadfastly for some time and curled his insufficient moustache up with some care then he fell a meditating on his beauty he considered himself three-quartered face left and right an expression of distaste crept over his features looking won't alter it hoopdriver he remarked you are a weedy customer my man shoulders narrow skimpy anyhow he put his knuckles on the toilet table and regarded himself with his chin lifted in the air good lord he said what a neck wonder why i got such a thundering lump there he sat down on the bed his eyes still on the glass if i'd been exercised properly if i'd been fed reasonable if i hadn't been shoved out of a silly school into a silly shop but there the old folks did know no better the schoolmaster ought to have but he didn't poor old fool still when it comes to meeting a girl like this it's hard i wonder what adam ad think of me as a specimen civilization eh heir of the ages i'm nothing i know nothing i can't do anything sketch a bit why wasn't i made an artist beastly cheap after all the suit does look in the sunshine no good hoopdriver anyhow you don't tell yourself any lies about it lovers ain't your game anyway but there's other things yet you can help the young lady and you will i suppose she'll be going home and that business of the bicycles to see to to my man forward hoopdriver if you ain't a beauty there's no reason why you should stop and be copped is it and having got back in this way to a gloomy kind of self-satisfaction he had another attempt at his hair preparatory to leaving his room and hurrying on breakfast for an early departure 
While breakfast was preparing, he wandered out into South Street and refurnished himself with the elements of luggage again. No expense to be spared, he murmured, disgorging the half-sovereign. End of section 9